What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, the Hungry Trends community sat down with Ann Pizza co-founder and CEO, Michael Lastoria, to talk about everything, including the future of livable restaurant wages, suburban expansion, and what lessons fast casual can learn from old school QSRs. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know, I know you've been really busy and you're in New York right now. Is that correct? I am. Yeah. New York City. I'm sure most people here are familiar with Ann Pizza and you, but uh, I just went on your LinkedIn. It said, long hair, bearded, driven to create, passionate about design, humanity, and livable wages, which we, we're definitely going to talk about today. But I, I'd love for you to just talk to us about your, the story behind how you founded Ann Pizza, the values that kind of went into that, how you chose the format. And then going forward into the new year, with all the craziness we've seen this year, how that's kind of evolved. By way of background, I grew up in one of the most rural towns. It's actually called a hamlet, 60 miles south of Buffalo. So 500 people, one flashing light, one bar, in and around a lot of poverty, very blue collar community. Made my way to New York City. Of course, what does somebody who grows up in one of the most rural places go? You go to New York City, the opposite of that at 22. I uh, took an inside sales job making call 350 cold calls a day. It was pretty miserable and figured out like within the first call six to eight weeks that I was not going to do inside sales. And as a result of kind of having just like a general, you know, somewhat generic uh, college education, I needed to do my own thing. So entrepreneurship became a calling largely because I just didn't want a sales career. And it's not to knock anyone that has a sales career is in the sales profession. You can have great jobs and be incredible earners. It just wasn't for me, this notion of dialing for dollars. And so started up a company that was an ad tech company, got into ad tech and media, was able to build that business in under four years and sell it to a private equity group, stayed on board for three years as CEO, went through two acquisitions and a merger. And that was when I was 29. So left that at 29, started up an ad agency with my best friend and business partner, called Jaywalk. And we did a lot of really cool stuff on the creative services, brand building, ad campaign work, and just really loved working with founders, entrepreneurs, or you know CEOs of businesses that we needed to dust off to make them a little bit more relevant and grew a love for brand. And so at that point, you know, recognized that I really wanted to scratch the itch I had for a long time, which was make an impact and make an impact in terms of doing something in society that really hopefully would be able to make a difference. And so when I talk about the origin story of and pizza, there was actually the and before there was the pizza. And the and to me really stood for promoting unity. And I saw a lot of this you know, early on growing up in very rural America, then moving to very urban America, the just great divide that I think we all started to recognize in 2016 and even recognize now exists today. And this notion of, is there a way to unite this country and largely uniting the working class by offering livable wages, by helping deal with income inequality, racial inequalities and equities, as well as gender and recognizing that a living wage and increasing the federal minimum wage is one of the fastest paths that we as a nation can really deal with the racial and gender inequities that exist. And then, of course, the pizza side of it was largely opportunistic. And we talked about that a little bit before, which was looking at an industry, and this was sort of 2010, 2011, it's got 40 some odd billion dollars in revenue, largely dominated by a few brands providing lower quality food, lower quality jobs, 
and are largely morally bankrupt, but feeling like there was definitely an opportunity to build you know, a platform and a brand that stood for high quality jobs, higher quality pizza under a socially conscious umbrella, and really do everything that we could to rethink the way that the pizza industry has been built and shaped and be basically the better version of since you've seen that now in relatively every industry, but doesn't exist in pizza. And a couple of stats just to educate everyone, you all may know this, but food service is, is now the largest industry and employer in America, employs 10% of America's workforce. And the restaurant industry is the second largest private employer outside of the federal government. And so this notion of impact, right, both short and long term, right, if you can create change in food service and you can become a case study for others to follow, like you can really, really, really put a large imprint on this industry for, for the betterment of it for a long time to come. So that was really... The origin story, fast forward to today, I guess we opened our first pizza shop in 2012. We have about 45-ish going to roughly 70 locations by the end of next year, mostly company-owned and operated. We have a couple that we license in airports and stadiums, and you really have built this and engine through building our own tech stack, you know, through getting better at sort of product and brand marketing, really thinking about how we can take care of our workforce, now called our family, and doing everything that we can, as I mentioned before, to just be a case study in this industry to, for others to follow. Love it. Beautiful. So you started out in D.C. I know you have a location in Nomad, but most of your locations aren't in the city center. Is that correct? Yeah. So we, I was actually in New York City, and I rented out an art studio uh, in West Chelsea, which is a pretty cool story and built a makeshift and pizza to try to figure <laughs> out how we could do this. And I was studying a lot about where is and pizza going to be born, right? If the concept was incubated in New York, like where are we going to give birth to it? And in doing a lot of research, sort of fell in love with a lot of Washington, D.C. At the time, there was Sweetgreen that was doing exceptionally well. You had Kava. You had a concept called Taylor Gourmet. It was Five Guys founding market as well as the market that carried Chipotle. And people don't know how important the DMV, DC, Maryland, Virginia was Chipotle outside of McDonald's, $350 million. The DMV was the largest contributor to the company cash flow and really wow. helped stand that company up in times when it was needed. And so just saw DC as a great place where we could still be an urban brand because that urban credibility was important. We were still operating mid-Atlantic and Northeast because for me, I want to go into the toughest markets and prove that what we built can work versus making it easier out of the gate because you know I'm a fighter and I want to make sure if I'm going to build a best of brand, it better work in New York City, it better work in Philly, it better work in DC, right? better work in Boston where people tend to get more credibility for the quality of Italian and pizza just in general, and then work on simultaneously a business model that had a ton of suburban scalability. And so packed my bags, went to DC, and that's where the DC uh, founding story is. We have three locations in Manhattan right now, one in Nomad, one in Astor Place, and one on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And going into next year, can you talk about how that format's going to evolve and kind of the locations you're, you're expanding into? Yeah, about two and a half, three years ago, we really started focusing on you know, suburban real estate largely because when you do your research on fast food, you know that you know the cash flow that most of the legacy fast food brands and operators generate come from the suburbs, you know, where you're mm. doing similar volumes to the urban environment, but much less occupancy and therefore much better profit. And mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the challenges that a lot of quote unquote fast casual, which you know, I, I really dislike that word, had made is that it was all about urban. And the challenge with that is if you really want scalability, you're going to have to build a model that works mm -hmm. in the suburbs. America is a giant suburb. And <laughs> 
it's really, really, really important. And if you look at the economics of, of most mm-hmm. of these larger companies that I mentioned, it's the suburbs that carry the day. And quite frankly, mm-hmm. intra-COVID now, they're the most important real estate that any company could yeah. have because suburban traffic and suburban revenue right now looks very different than, than, than urban or CBD. Wow. Yeah, very interesting. So shifting over to the tech side, I know you guys were really prepared for COVID. I know that there's a lot of QSRs that probably weren't as focused, but you know, definitely Papa John's capitalized on it pretty well. Who is setting the gold standard in your mind as far as QSR when it comes to owning the customer and optimizing for that last mile? I think you have to look at, you know, legacy fast food or big pizza that structurally were generating most of their revenue off-premise already, you know, had built their own tech stack or had done good third-party integrations that allowed them to capitalize more and more on this moving trend to off-prem. And so it's kind of ironic because when you think about how a lot of the fast casuals or the craft casuals or the fine casuals or whatever you want to call them position themselves, I think oftentimes they miss what's gotten fast food or big pizza to where it is and Mm -hmm. often want to kind of like think that, you know, they're better because they have maybe a better or different supply chain, right? Or because they were birthed, right? In the, in the 2000s versus the 1950s or 1960s. But a lot of these companies are much smarter and much more well-equipped when you think about sort of where the future trends are going in that, you know, they have, you know, a decent database in, in the millions oftentimes of consumers that they have and own the data and therefore can control right the top line performance and aren't as dependent on the marketplace to generate revenue, which really impacts their four wall margin. Uh, in addition to that, you know, really thought about speed of delivery and making sure that hot food would show up hot and sort of doubled down on that. And that was sort of how they built their businesses. And so a lot of it is almost like we're kind of turning back the time from, you know, this food ecosystem that we built over the past 20 years to what the 1980s looks like, where there's just sort of fast food dominance in this country. I don't think it's good for people's health necessarily, but I do think it's a good wake up call, you know, for all of us that, you know, we're born in the last 20 years to pay attention to what these legacy companies have done, how quickly they can pivot to tech mm. or the fact that they understood very early on the strong off-premise value proposition that we all need to learn and are learning, you know, day in and day out. Yeah. But who specifically would you say, like, I'm definitely less well-versed in that space as far as which of these conglomerates are doing well when it comes to that side of the business? Yeah, I think, look, in the pizza category specifically, you know, Domino's has and is doing a fantastic job in terms of owning the customer and owning the experience, staying away from the marketplaces Mm -hmm. and doing a pretty good job on you know, consistently fulfilling their promises on on feeding a family for really good value. You can look at, you know, companies like Wingstop that have performed exceptionally well, obviously chicken and chicken wings are a comfort food that is performing better than most and similar to pizza. They've done exceptionally well. Starbucks obviously is sort of the gold standard of building out one of the most dynamic loyalty programs that got, call it 50% plus of all orders being placed on their platform. That that really is the gold standard is if you can get to 50% of all transactions going through your native platform, you're in a class in a league of your own. Sweetgreen more recently had done it. Now, if you look at why that's such a gold standard is because it's really hard to do as people are competing more and more to be an app on your phone, right? Or or part of a solution in your life. Sweetgreen was able to do it because they had such pent up and such massive demand, especially in New York City that you downloaded the Sweetgreen app because you didn't want to wait 
45 minutes to get a salad yeah. at lunch. Right, Starbucks did it because they had a, just a loyalty program people hadn't seen before. And Domino's sort of similar to, to both did it because of just the overall sort of convenience of that ordering experience versus phone orders totally. when phone orders were the most popular. So you, you have to be really, really, really good at a very, very specific thing to get to that percentage of order ahead on your platform and not many have gotten there. It's funny because Domino's calls itself a tech company first, I, I think. And and recently was reading that they're like talking smack about ghost kitchens. I'm like, you guys are the original ghost kitchens. Like, what are you talking about? If anything, you're like contradicting yourself. Yeah, look, if you look at, I mean, the last time I you know, stumbled across a Domino's, it was like taking two wrong right-hand turns <laughs> and there's a Domino's, right? Yeah. And they were really smart about, you know, an asset light, lower CapEx model that was really focused on off-premise and recognizing they don't need people to yeah. go into Domino's to your point. That's kind of a ghost kitchen. And exactly. I also think there's sort of a Domino's has a little bit of an edge or a chip on their shoulder as it relates to constantly wanting to box out right any version of competition because they're so big and because they've had the success that they've had. And that's mm -hmm. always a watch out, which is once you think you're at the top of the mountain, you know, likely the <laughs> only place to go is down. They've done exceptionally well in the pandemic, but largely because of their market clustering strategy, right? The growth mm -hmm. that we've seen in the success of Domino's the last eight to 10 years. And there's a great case study of Domino's in Seattle where you saw you know comp sales go up exponentially, margin performance, unit level EBITDA go up exponentially as they started to really fortress and cluster a market. And that's mm. one thing that you know we all need to be doing. Mm. And it's one of Ampizza's big focuses, which is saturating markets to the point of boxing out competition, but more importantly, just being wildly efficient with getting your product to point A to point B. Because the more units you have, you can be relatively agnostic in terms of where that pizza is being produced from because the customer doesn't care if they're in Washington, DC and they order online, if that pizza is coming from our Chinatown location or E Street location, they just want the pizza getting to them quicker. And that's part of the domino strategy. You want to kind of be agnostic of where you're producing or where you're fulfilling the order and get to the customer and reduce delivery time. So the product quality mm -hmm. is better. And quite frankly, people knowing that the food is going to come quicker tend to prefer, you know, one company or one, you know, brand or one restaurant over the other. And it could just be just based on that, which if I can get food in 20 minutes versus 40, 45 minutes, mm -hmm. that's who I'm going with is a consistency in that. In, in totally. New York, one of my favorite Italian restaurants is Frank. It's been around forever. In the East Village? Yeah. And I, I know I can get my favorite meal, which is the rigatoni al ragu, ordered and mm -hmm. delivered to me in under 20 minutes. And it's consistent. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have you built this kind of dispatch system for and pizza? We have, yeah. We we built it internally. It's it's in the earlier innings of it, but it really only and that's part of the the mobile kitchen strategy, which people are still kind of like largely confused. Or what's the intent? What are you trying to do with them? <laughs> Obviously, the business didn't really work that well. We partnered with Zoom, and the Zoom business didn't perform that well as it relates to the mobile kitchen. Even though they they pivoted to PPE now in producing that and their larger facilities, but it's largely a part of the fortressing and clustering strategy of mm -hmm. making sure that as orders are coming in, we're agnostic on where it gets fulfilled. And if we can park a mobile kitchen that sort of splits the market and allows me to get pizza to our customers faster, that's a really good use of that particular thing because I'm not building out a brick and mortar so I can do it in a more capital light way. And I can get more units theoretically mm -hmm. like in the ground or on the road that would allow me to really sort of penetrate a market and build up market share faster. So it sounds like that side of Zoom's business works for you, but other parts may not have worked for the company. Like what's the TLDR on that whole kind of yeah. um, 
company? Well, I think if you look, I think, and this is similar to ghost kitchens, right? Mobile kitchens are sort of more a more visible version of them. One of the challenges with them is there's a lot of regulatory issues in terms of working through getting permits because these particular mobile kitchens are not food trucks. They're mm. larger and they're larger because they have increased production capabilities, which you want. You want the same production capabilities you can in a pizza shop in a mobile kitchen so that you can produce the volume that you ultimately need to meet the demand. So that's relatively new. We've been in a lot of jurisdictions where like, we don't even know how to permit this thing because it doesn't fit into mm-hmm. any category neatly, right? It's not a restaurant. It's not a pizza shop. It's not a food truck. Like, what is this thing? And so as a mm-hmm. result of that, it takes a lot of time and some capital to get permitting done. I think the second thing is that, as I mentioned before, if you treat it more like a ghost kitchen, the revenue, the top line isn't there, right? Meaning mm-hmm. that a lot of the challenges that these ghost kitchens are finding is that the juice really isn't worth the squeeze for the operator. Because if right. you can only do 10, 12, $15,000 a week in sales, and that maybe comes at like a best case, like 10% margin, you're better off investing your dollars elsewhere because the totally. rents on these places, I think, are just too high. You kind of have to be able to serve and sell multiple products or multiple brands under one roof. That's the model that we've all found. Oh, that actually works because they can do enough revenue through a multiple of brands under one sort of small kitchen where the juice is worth the squeeze. But a lot of brands themselves are finding that the economics just aren't there. And as a result of that, it's going to have some some challenges. There's definitely a lot of, of headwinds that are facing mm-hmm. that industry. There's a lot that's interesting about it, but there's there aren't enough sort of good case studies or examples of brands right, like an Ann Pizza, like a Sweet Green, like a Cava, like a Shake Shack, mm-hmm. using them, sort of the higher growth brands in a way where they're really excited about that being a core part of their growth strategy. And now that real estate just got completely disrupted right, vis-a-vis COVID. You know, there's a lot of really interesting customer-facing right, real estate assets, not mm. ghost, right, that are available for you know, some cents on the dollar. And right. so I think a lot of brands are also shifting towards, well, let's take advantage of that real estate first because it's a known commodity versus investing significantly in you know, the, these sort of ghost kitchens where we just don't know what the longer term mm-hmm. performance is going to be. And quite frankly, there aren't enough of them to make that a part of your like growth strategy. Like if I wanted to go do 20 of these in the DMV, like there isn't enough of them right. for that to right. be a core component of how I grow. So you're still doing this sort of onesie twosie approach, which as you know, is really hard to get leverage and to get scale on. Mm, interesting. Well, yeah, Dan Fleischman, who's tuning in right now, did a calculator about ghost kitchens and found that the break even was about 650,000 in gross sales for a typical rent. And, uh, and I totally see that. And you see that with companies with like order mark, which are asset light, that are able to roll deploy, you know, virtual concepts out of any kind of mom and pop restaurant. Yeah, and I'll just, first of all, I think what Alex Cantor is doing is, is fantastic, really smart in terms of providing additional value add, right, to, to the brands that he's already plugged his tech into. But the 650 is really interesting because I, I often talk to operators. I'm like, look, what percentage of revenue are the marketplaces providing today in a typical store, right? And they may say, oh, it's about 20% of my volume, 30%. I'll say, okay, that's a good barometer for the revenue that you're going to generate, right, in a ghost kitchen, and then start to do the economics on that. Like, does this work at a fifth or a fourth or a third of your total volume? And oftentimes it doesn't. 
And so you have to generate significantly more demand. And so you have to be really, really, really good at brand marketing or it's multi-concept under one roof, which is fine. Like if I spun out a wing concept, like <laughs> an and pizza and an and wings in a ghost kitchen, if I'm double stacking revenue would likely work. But mm -hmm. then you're kind of getting away from your core growth strategy, which is if I already have something that's working, do I want to do something else? If I can just kind of drive the semi right through the middle of the field, I'd rather do that today and get the growth and the scale. And we have another, another member, Mo, who's in here from status.ai, hope I pronounced it right, who is wondering about how and when do you see more automation coming to wider kitchens, maybe not just ghost kitchens, but you know, in the back of house. And I know you've yeah. kind of designed your concept around this conveyor pizza model. So maybe talk us through how mm -hmm. you designed your concept with the conveyor ovens. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I remember I was actually at the Sweet Life Festival, which was Sweet Green's concert that they threw every year. And they had like mm -hmm. a pre-party at the rooftop of a hotel in DC. And, you know, one of the founders had introduced me to Eater. And uh, it was it was someone from Eater who was in New York, but down in DC just to write about the concert. And at the time, you know, everyone wanted to talk about oven. Right. It was the most important thing. Like, where is your oven coming from and where is it being made? And I remember, you know, having the conversation instantly when I said we're using a conveyor oven, you know, what you like a more modern version of what you'd see in a Domino's. Like she had zero interest to write about Ann Pizza because it was so off-putting, right, that we would use an oven like that in, in 2011, 2012. And so we, we made a pretty bold bet because it, it's it's not there's nothing sexy about these ovens. We we put them in because we knew that they would be incredibly efficient. They would be consistent, but most importantly, they are ventless and they are electric. So our entire cooking platform is both ventless and electric, mm. knowing that we needed long-term through fortressing and through sort of being production agnostic, the ability to operate really small spaces. That was a sacrifice that we were going to have to make. So the challenge for us is how do we make good pizza in what would be considered a lower brow oven? And that's been sort of one of the bigger sort of product innovation challenges um, that we consistently tinker around with. But I found that it matters less at scale because a lot of groups that try to scale up with fancier ovens really struggle because that's more of an art than it is a science. And so oftentimes your pizza gets cooked poorly for a variety of different reasons when you're using you know, a true wood burning oven and a labor model that's not really a labor of love or mm. you're using a big clunky you know, gas oven with sort of a fake log that's become really popular in fast casual pizza. At that point, like, what's the difference between that and a conveyor oven? Because I don't think the cook right. is necessarily any better. Right. But, I, but, but automation is coming. It's just not there yet, mainly because it's probably three to five years out before I think the equipment itself is going to be affordable and can be plugged in and you'll actually get the efficiencies. Like I can't find any equipment right now that can produce the throughput that we need at peak volumes in our pizza shops that our staff can't, you know, produce themselves. We are significantly outperforming anything that can be automated right now. I want to get into another question from, from Trevor who asks, you know, how do you think about leveraging emerging AI and personalization technologies to super serve your guests in the future? And how do you think these technologies will have an impact on key business drivers like retention, loyalty, frequency, and average order value? I think it's going to be huge. I mean, we have looked into and are, are looking at and working with a lot, especially on our tech space platform. 
And, you know, especially as we think about we're rolling out uh, a new native sort of order ahead skin that's going to look more like call it Netflix meets caviar. That's really focused on mm. pizza world in various different categories and being able to dynamically show people all of the different pizza options that in theory you can create that sort of already exist on our menu and, and really sort of thinking through based on all kinds of different factors, you know, how we're putting the most dynamic menu in front of someone that's going to get them really excited about the brand, the fact that we have different ingredients than big pizza typically has and providing a much better digital experience because I think that so many brands miss out on what digital can be. It's basically for them replicating their menu in a digital environment versus having a real clear point of view mm. around what you want that true user experience and user interface to be digitally and approaching it very differently as it's a different mm. business, it's a different experience and therefore it should fundamentally look different. And so our sort of skin in terms of the in-shop experience versus the digital is going to look like they're two completely different businesses. And I get excited about that because they ultimately should be. Someone should have different features right? Different advantage, different benefits when they order from you digitally versus just here's our menu, order from it. No, it should be much more than that and much greater than that. As it relates to the AI, that's going to really help us get scale. I mean, we, we're very focused on providing good jobs and so scaling up with human beings, but also doing, you know, using AI for the automation around, you know, text to order, around making sure that we can have rapid responses from text messaging platforms. How do I fill up the first 90 seconds Right, using AI based on what a person is texting inbound so that I can then buy myself time but also be incredibly responsive for then one of the human beings to actually get on the text platform to respond themselves, right? which is really, really, really important and really beneficial. So you think about everything from dynamic menus to text message, you know, guest experience to text to ordering, uh, I think AI is going to play a huge, huge role. But again, like, you know, AI is just really, you got to have data. Right. There's no AI does nothing unless you have like robust data sets. And that's part of the reason why I went to an entire text message platform is that we have significantly more data about our customers, uh, which we use transparently and not to market to them, but just to do a better job, you know, overall with our communication and with our service. And that's the one thing I think that's really important, which is AI will be nothing for you if it's not actually looking at, you know, robust data sets where it can actually mm -hmm. do something intelligently with those. Wow. So, so what percentage, I mean, or like maybe you don't have the exact figures, but like how meaningful is text to order as a channel for your sales? Te text to order is still on the lower side since we're still in beta, but our entire communications platform is done via text message. So you can't call an Ann Pizza, you can't email us. So you can imagine we're dealing with, you know, hundreds and in some case thousands of inbounds on a per hour basis, right, mm -hmm. to our team based on everything from people wanting to change you know, their order in real time, which we allow for. And so all of our, our, our order ahead notifications are sent out via text. But the nice thing is, is that there's two-way communication. So you can reply, you can respond to it. If you wanted to modify an order, you can do that. And then we fire off a text directly to, well, basically what happens is there's direct integration to the order ahead platform. And so the person's getting the inbound text from a two-way saying, oh no, I wanted actually extra sauce on that. We can go change the order in real time because everything is on bump screens. And so if the pizza isn't made and it's at some point in the assembly process, we can course correct that order without any human interaction. And it will just show up differently on the screen. And mm -hmm. as you're going through sort of the quality assurance checks, uh, it just allows for people in real time. Also, if someone's having an issue with the in-shop experience, we can course correct in real time, which is really powerful. Wow. 
Very cool. And how do and how does the delivery fulfillment work through that and OS system? We outsource as of right now. We're working on on first party delivery, but we are outsourced right now. We do A B testing with Relay, with Uber Eats, and with DoorDash Drive, uh, and we are integrated with all of the platforms direct integrations, right? Which allows us to uh, you know fire off notifications should we need to directly to guests. But anyone that orders natively on our platform, not through one of the marketplaces, mm-hmm. gets you know the text message uh, notifications and gets a series four of them. So it's like a agnostic on the last mile fulfillment, but you're also on the Uber Eats marketplace. Correct. So Uber. So what is the deal? Does Uber have an API that we just don't know about, or what's the deal? You mean in terms of us firing text messages off? No, as far as Uber's delivery API, because I know that they were working on it in 2016 and then it went away. Yes, they have one. Got it. It's just not yeah. used by that many people. Yeah, it, it's it's in, I, I want to say, don't quote me on this, but I want to say they they have a handful of partners that they have this stood up with. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to like, you know, the they do the marketplace without the fulfillment and charge a lower commission, but I hadn't heard of that many people doing the API. So that's interesting. And some people speculated that that's why they bought Postmates, which I rolled my eyes at. Yeah, they're they're interesting because in theory, they have more overall drivers on the road because of their right. rideshare business. And, and so in theory, if it all worked the way that they say it's going to work, which you know I don't have any uh, reason to doubt them, is that they can do faster end-to-end times as a result of just having you know, a more clustered driver network um, at least in the denser urban environments, DoorDash, as you know, has done you know a better job uh, in the suburbs yeah. and building out that model. Uh, but it should be pretty interesting. But we're, we're trying to constantly bend and twist the arms of the marketplaces in terms of thinking through shared loyalty programs, which mm. I know very few people are doing in terms of two-way right uh, uh, order fulfillment as well as returning back to the pizza shop, so we can use you know our own hot holding. Right versus using driver networks or having driver networks actually be specifically targeted to hot food, right? Versus food that doesn't need to be hot. And that's, I think, mm-hmm. a really important thing. If you can have a subset of drivers that have the right hot holding equipment, and therefore, you know, a pizza company like And Pizza, right, or another that thinks it's very important that that is being used for order fulfillment like specifically tapping into a hot network that we would pay up for, mm. right? Versus a network of couriers that don't necessarily have hot bags. And I think that's really interesting as well. Hmm. Wow. So like what, what has Domino's done to its product to make it work in this environment that like sacrifices on something to make it work as it travels? Yeah. So, I mean, outside of, you know, the product being sort of chemical laden, which you know a lot of people don't necessarily either care about or know about, and there's a reason why most you know delivery pizza is is thicker and heavier, right? It's because it retains heat. The problem with that, it's also the reason why you want to take a nap right after you consume <laughs> the product. The amount of chemicals and how heavy the pie are, they don't necessarily condition it well, I think, for the future of where food is ultimately going. Mm-hmm. I would also say that it's not a great lunch product either. Part of the reason why we have such outsized you know, AUVs, average unit volumes compared to any other pizza company, at least in the smaller footprint, not the bigger box, uh, is because we've, we've sort of reintroduced pizza as a lunch option because the pizza isn't right mm. as heavy and it's cleaner. As a result mm. of that, you know, you just feel a little bit lighter. So while you, you know, you've chosen to eat pizza, you, you've chosen not to eat a salad, it, it still happens to be a little bit healthier and more responsible from what people are used to seeing from the broader pizza mm-hmm. landscape out there. And therefore, you're seeing more people consume pizza 
at lunch and having two day parts or having lunch and a dinner business really helps you with unit economics. And it really helps you know, with your margin because you're just pumping more revenue through the system and you're utilizing labor in a way that's wildly more efficient than just having you know, a dinner or weekend business. Totally. Wow. I'm, I'm a huge fan of pizza for lunch, but yeah, totally hear that spike in blood sugar. And that's, I've been studying a lot about personalized nutrition. This is a Lumen device. It's a slight tangent. I breathe into this in the morning and it tells me if I'm burning carbs or burning fat. And ideally you want to be quote unquote metabolically flexible and burning fat in the morning. Cause when you're sleeping and fasting overnight, your body's supposed to be in like a ketogenic state where you've switched over to, to using fat for, for energy as opposed to you relying on carbs from food. I love that. What is it called? Lumen. I'm actually, it's, yeah, everyone who is, I'm putting out my Thanksgiving story on this company um, in two days. So you will be reading more about it, um, everybody. So I think this is going to be huge. And going back to what you were saying about personalizing the menu, you know, at some point, I think companies like yours and, and others will be integrating into some, some sort of API that's going to know something about my gut composition or my metabolism and be able to take what you have inventory-wise and rank it in a way yeah. that's right for the context of what I'm trying to do that day or you know, make sure that it minimizes my my spikes of, of, of blood sugar. Because you know basically, the, these Israeli scientists discovered that if you and I eat a banana your blood sugar might spike and mine might be stable, you know? And so we can't recommend the same diet to Michael as we can to Matt because our, we've built different gut compositions over the course of our lifetime. That's fascinating. So, yeah. And I, I love that because, you know, one of the things I think that's, that's fundamentally broken in the fast food and big pizza ecosystem is that there's this narrative and, and there are a lot of advocacy groups, the American pizza community, the pizza space being one, that you know, over the last 20 years has been focused on two things, and they're supported by the top 50 pizza chains in the US financially, which is keeping the minimum wage at $7.25 an hour and keeping basic nutritional information off of menus. Mm. And I, I feel like part of the problem I have with that, you know, outside of it just being morally wrong, is it's so far on the wrong side of history. When you think about a company like Patagonia, every time it comes out with a statement around best practices for how to purchase right their clothing more people purchase their clothing like we should mm. literally be coming out with guidance around what is the right amount of van pizza to consume right mm -hmm. and then the more i can get to know about you in terms of you building out your profile right the more we can recommend right yeah. the ingredients right and the, and the quote unquote pizzas that are better for you than for someone else and be much more partnership like or partnership minded in terms of like letting you know what we think is best versus just constantly trying to sell our sizzle and our food on you at all costs to you at all mm -hmm. costs to society that's going to be a big shift and so i love stuff like this because again the more that we can get the data on people and you know how they metabolize to your point and what their sort of like health profile looks like you know, we can be a better partner to them because we don't need to sell everybody our pizza all of the time to succeed. We just need to be, you know, a responsible brand that's providing, you know, higher quality pies and, you know, we can win both short and long term. And so I, I love that this stuff is starting to exist because it's going to separate those that really care about their brand being in partnership with their customer versus being, you know, competitive with. And so many are just competitive with that. It, it's, it's, uh, it, it's frightening. 
the same way that Domino's went out and integrated with every single ordering platform, like the Alexa, they were the first to build an app there. Mm-hmm. They were the first to build an app on whatever Palm Pilot, you know, whatever that mm-hmm. operating system was, I can't remember. But like, literally, you look back in history, they were there first, right? Whoever can figure out how to integrate with whatever becomes the, you know, whether it's the Halo band or the Whoop band or it's my gut test or this Lumen device, I think will really stand out. I agree. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's a good cadence because again, our business should work. The, like our business should work in, like I mentioned, in partnership with our customers, right? Yeah. It should work because you get to eat pizza. Maybe it's once a week or once every other week. And you choose to sort of partner with us and we're integrated into the devices that you're using, right? And so all of our you know, nutritional information is uploaded into your system and as a result of that, like it, it, uh, it keeps you ordering from us because you trust what we're doing. It keeps our business going. And, and I think that really works well. I want to I touch on something you, you mentioned earlier and, and through our own conversations that I, I just want to pu- you know, push on a little bit, which is this idea of the terminology of around fast casual that, you know, and what that really means and why that kind of came about. And kind of this notion that fast food is generally seen as unhealthy because most of the time it is. And fast kind of casual kind of in my mind emerged because it was it was taking some of the elements of around convenience and trying to make it healthier, more transparent, and sexier in some ways. But you know, where where is fast casual today with COVID? Now that we we don't really we're designing everything to be a smaller box with off prem, and where does it need to go? And and kind of where is it's, it's it feels like it's neither here nor there. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a tweener right now. And I think part of the mistake of fast casual is the fact that there's an industry that calls itself fast casual. Right? I think when you have to bend an industry name to feel like your differentiator fit in, it doesn't make sense. Consumers largely don't know what fast casual is. Like I, I, and I just don't think it makes a ton of sense. It's sort of like you're either in fast food or you're not. Right? We all know what a casual dining experiment looks like. Uh, we all know what a fast food is, but these places aren't largely a hybrid, right? Most every fast casual, it's not a place that I'm going, right, for a casual dining experience. Anyway, it, I just think it's goofy. And I think that we we get so much in our own way by trying to sort of snub at an industry that's been around for, you know, decades and decades and decades that actually have taught us a lot of things. Like I've learned a lot about in and out Right or, or a lot about what we do through In and Out as it relates to paying living wages. The same thing mm-hmm. can be said about Chick Fil A, right, and their sort of pseudo franchise system and how they take care of and how you can make real income. And the fact that they're closed on Sundays, people think that that's the craziest thing in the world to do. <laughs> I think it's the smartest thing in the world to do because now they're recruiting out of churches. They're a largely religious brand, and who mm-hmm. wouldn't want to go work in food service for a company where every Sunday there's no pressure to ever work. And they can be with their families and they can do their own thing. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right? Or what Starbucks has been doing for a very long time. So it's like those are the kind of brands that have the healthiest balance sheets today than ever before. Right. And it's mm-hmm. largely because they didn't compromise on their values. They didn't compromise on the quality of food or the quality of experience. They were consistently all in on that. And that's the main reason why they're winning. Those that are compromising and or doing uh, something that I would say is sort of either out of bounds or cute, like it doesn't usually work. And so I think one of the challenges with the fast casual is that they didn't actually learn. And I think I benefited from the fact that I wasn't in food, right? My background is, is as I mentioned, sort of advertising, brand building, ad tech. And I came into this industry just researching. I spent two, three hours a day just reading and trying to figure out 
how can I be a student? Like we have a lot of humility as a brand because we're just constantly looking for data points to validate right, what our thesis is on our growth, on every aspect of the business. And, and we're constantly trying to learn, learn, learn. I talk to as many operators and anyone that will chat, uh, which is why I love talking to you all because I know there's as like, I can learn probably more from you than you can learn from me. And doing these things is just a great way to build out the network. And sometimes I do more of the talking, but I know that I'm going to meet every single person who's like listening into this and we'll have a relationship and they're going to teach me so much more that I don't know about what's coming. I think Fast Casual lost that. They thought slightly better supply chain, right? With little to no excitement around brand, generally speaking, urban first, like was Mm -hmm. enough to create a category. It wasn't. If you remove McDonald's from Chipotle, it doesn't exist, right? If you look at Chipotle's average volume and economics, like they were a sub 1.5, they were closer to a $1 million AUV, call it 5% margin business when they went public. (laughs) And the cash flow that McDonald's gave them to build out a brand that no one would invest in, by the way, is what got them to the top of the mountain. And when they went public, they became great at brand marketing because then everyone knew who they were. But like that formula is not repeatable. And I don't know of any other fast casual concept that we can point to and say, outside of maybe Panera Bread, which just dominated the suburbs, which is really smart, where you're like, oh, that's a great example. Like Mm -hmm. Noodles and Company, Potbelly, like so many have gone up and they've come back down because they missed on the excitement around fast food, right? The brand excitement, the product marketing, the happy meals, right? The simplicity of the menu, the fact that these were largely suburban-led concepts, the drive-through, right? The innovation. Think about the innovation you've seen in fast food versus the innovation in fast casual. It almost non-existent in fast casual. And then this mass replication of a thing in fast casual that happened where I don't even think the brands got it right. It's like in year one, year two, you think you can go build out, you know, 100 locations or 200 or 300 of these. And then that's going to be relevant. Like it's taken us eight years at Ann Pizza and we're still learning about what Ann Pizza should be as we're finally starting to scale, but we needed to get the brand right, the tech right, the product marketing, you know, right. And I can, I mean, the management team's right, the employer employee relationship, right. Like our thesis on like, what do we want to be when we grow? There's so many things that we're still trying to get right. That like, it doesn't suit itself to mass replication until you figured it out. Chick-fil-A was a mall brand. The first 150 Chick-fil-A's were inside of a mall. You think about that. Right, In and Out Burger in their 40th year, they had less than 100 locations. So it's like when you start to take all these data points, aggressive scale is very, very hard to accomplish, especially when that very thing you're scaling isn't pressure tested in both the suburbs, urban neighborhoods, CBD, and doesn't have enough history to understand what it actually is supposed to be. And then it becomes this average thing that's mm-hmm. scaled up that people just aren't that excited about. Now, it's really hard to kill restaurant brands, right? Because they constantly turn over with private equity. It's the Cozy story, right? Cozy's on their like 10th owner. It's really hard for them to die. But if you're not like on the way up, people really aren't that excited about it. And it's the death of a thousand cuts, which so many of us are trying to avoid. Wow, preach. I mean, that was amazing. And, and to that point, I kind of want to close out on this and I want to be mindful of your time, but you have a SPAC, uh, Fast Acquisition Corp., that you've partnered up with somebody on. And we've seen a lot of M&A activity around franchises in the QSR space, but not a whole lot of public activity. What, what do you think is the big opportunity here? 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, my, my business partner, Doug Jacob, and one of our first investors, Sandy Bell, the founder of Ruby Tuesday, who's one of the, the greatest human beings I've ever met. Um, you know, they partnered and, and built out a SPAC that I'm, I'm lucky to be a part of. But, you know, I think a lot of it has to go with, I mean, the SPAC product is really interesting. It's, it's obviously talked about quite a bit, you know, on CNBC and, and sort of everyone who wants to write Right, and talk about it. But, but I think it's an interesting opportunity for companies that maybe didn't want to go the traditional IPO route or didn't necessarily know they wanted to be a publicly traded company. And I think there's a lot of legacy you know, fast food brands that structurally uh, are producing a significant amount of cash flow. Like you'd be blown away at like a number of these concepts. You're like, wow, I didn't realize that, that concept was doing you know, 50, 60, 70, $80 million of consolidated EBITDA right? And has been around for 40 years and has most of their revenue coming through a drive-through system. And they actually mm-hmm. have technology that they've built and a relatively loyal following and customer base. So it's, it's kind of like going out and looking for a lot of the gems that exist that people wouldn't be surprised or packaging maybe one or two of them together to create a bigger business mm-hmm. um, that you've seen work exceptionally well and providing you know, shareholders with liquidity options that they never knew that they actually had uh, or, or cleaning up the cap stack in, in a way that they've wanted mm. to do. And, and so it's, it's, I think it's a great product. You know, we're out there looking. Um, it's going to be fun to see, you know, what my partners are able to do. Uh, and also a, a good learning, you know, for me and Ann Pizza, as we start, you know, looking at some of these companies, what is it going to take for us to get real scale? And, and how do we use sort of the knowledge base of those that have come before us to consistently be rethinking and retooling everything that we do? Uh, so that as we climb the mountain, we're being really, 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 really thoughtful and, and getting this notion too, of we have to generate cash flow. Right. Our businesses actually have to produce real cash flow. And that's the one reason why people invest at scale in the restaurant industry is because it generates a lot of predictable cash flow that many industries, you don't see that type of cash flow. And, and that's really important to the attractability of our concepts long term. Amazing. Well, I'm looking out for the In-N-Out Burger SPAC. $5 billion. <laughs> and, and, yeah. Yeah, I think that's like the gold standard of a company that everyone has tried to you know, do something with you know, over the years. And, and they just, they refuse to, but if anyone can, can get in and out public, that would be one of the most entertaining. You saw the 12 hour wait right, yes. last week for the oh new, my it's God. just, it's unbelievable. What a brand. Yep. All right. Well, I think we covered a lots of awesome ground here. Loved your perspective and, you know, thank you so much for, for hopping in and appreciate you all. Thanks for having me, Matt. Really appreciate it, brother. Love what you're doing. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.